Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 28th, 2022, and this is show number 903. We have a huge show today. I recorded a fun conversation with Jill from the North Woods about how she rearranged her house to create a comfortable and sound-treated podcast recording and editing studio. Then I've got part four of my Tiny Mac Tip series, and then we have a quick non-tech product review from Bruce, also known as Use the Data in Slack and in the live chat room. To finish us off, Security Bits is with Bart Bouchatz and the special guest that we have been teasing for weeks. But before we get to all that, I want to give a plug for Bodie Grimm's Kilowatt podcast yet again, because this time Steve and I got to be guests on his show this week. Bodhi covers electric vehicle news, but also other things like solar panels and batteries. He asked us to come on to explain how we chose to add whole home batteries to our house, the decisions we made and how we made them, and the process we went through to get them installed. It was great fun because, well, anything you do with Bodhi is, and I think you might enjoy hearing about how we became independent from grid energy. This is actually part one of two because Bodhi cut the interview into two pieces where the second half is all about heat pumps. I should also mention that you'll hear the EV news before the interview in episode 309 of the Kilowatt Podcast. You can find the Kilowatt Podcast in your podcatcher of choice or at the link in the show notes. Well, you've been hearing from the awesome Jill McKinley quite a bit lately. She's been doing a lot of audio reviews for the NoSilicast, along with her own fantastic show. Let me make sure I get this right. Small Steps Podcast. Is that right? Uh, start with small steps. Dagnabbit. So I, That's all right. I worked on it, but the website is smallstepspod.com. That's right. Yep. Okay. I got one thing right. All right. I start with small steps podcast. Anyway, so she does recordings for the NoSilicast and for her own show. And um, she's created kind of a complicated setup to do recordings involving two different rooms and two different machines. And uh, Windows has left the building, but she's got two different Macs. And she's just recently done some uh, improvements to the room that she's working in. And I thought it might be fun to just have her on for a few minutes and chat about what where she came from and what she's done and maybe what she's trying to do for the future. Future. I'm sure it, there is no way that Jill is finished. I already know that. Right. Not finished. <laughs> I'm never finished. Jill is just like an improvement ramp on this is an improvement ramp. That is who you are. Yeah, that's right. That is true. Um, and this started out when I was having a conversation with you and you were wondering why I was in two separate rooms, one where I record my podcast and the other where I actually do the editing. And I said, well, my upstairs is the best room to record in. It has the best soundproofing. It has carpeting. And I'm in, I built this foam tunnel to sit inside of so that it sounds really good. And you said, well, it sounds like you should be making that room more comfortable so you can be up there more often. <laughs> but well, that's the idea I really hadn't considered. So that started this gigantic quest of me deciding that I had a guest bedroom with no guests. I mm. never had any in it. So why do I have this guest bedroom? <laughs> so now you're and, in three rooms, I bet, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm still in two. <laughs> um, so I decided the bed's gone. The furniture for the bedroom's gone. It all got hauled out to a curb. A friend of mine said that her friend who lives near me said, is Jill moving? Oh. Nope. I was just chucking out all the furniture that I did not want to have in here anymore with the idea that maybe I could create a recording room that I'm not in a foam tunnel, that I can soundproof the walls, maybe build acoustic panels or do something that makes it sound good without me being inside a foam box all the time. 
Yeah, it's got to be so, hot inside a foam box too. Yeah, it's it's hot. It's just not very pleasant to be in. And I'm starting a podcast with a friend of mine, and I needed a place for two people to record. We both can't be in the in the phone booth together, so <laughs> I had a challenge before me. Okay, so now you used to do your editing in uh, what, like in the family room, living room sort of yeah. place? And yeah, it's just ac- acoustically, it was bad there, right? Right. Okay. Terrible. But it was but part more of the comfortable because you weren't inside of a phone booth? Yeah, that's right. And I wasn't filled with beds and you know, all the stuff that was sitting around me, which um, you know I now don't have. But part of the thing is that I do record maybe eight podcasts at a time. You mean, and then not at the same they, time. You mean in in sequence, in sequence, right? Oh wow! So, and then I go downstairs where it's nice and comfy, and my TV's down there, and I just edit all the podcasts and, and start laying them out for scheduling. Okay, wow! I don't do anything ahead of time, <laughs> like <laughs> hardly at all. It's all last minute for me. Well, and that's you know really what feeder does for me is that it allows me to schedule and be ahead. And so then when I do have customer trips with my work, I can be ahead for them and not worry about having a podcast to issue. Okay. Okay. So, so that's now, really why there's two rooms. Okay. So now, uh, now what's your room setup? What have you done? So now that all the furniture is removed, I started working with blankets and different types of ways to see if I could make this room sound better. And By the way, um, are you recording in this new room right now? This is the first time I'm recording in this room, it although I've had some perfect. tests. It Great. sounds, the audio, the, there's no reverberation. There's no room echo at all. It sounds really right. good. Oh, good. And that's what I was afraid of. So I did a bunch of test podcasts and then I would look at it in my software to see if it looked the same, if it, it uh, had friends. I, I called them my listener test panel to see if it <laughs> sounded good. And they all thought it, it actually sounded better than it did before. So that made me quite happy. And what I have now for a situation is initially I was going to build acoustic panels with those foam boards. And mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. There's wood and stapling and all sorts of things involved. I watch YouTube videos on how to do it. But part of me thought that people have speakers in their podcasting room and I don't have a single speaker in here. I don't make noise in here. I'm pretty quiet actually. And so I don't know that I needed all that infrastructure. That much, you know? Uh, yeah. Right, right. I, yeah. So I started with getting some $20 moving blankets and I put a curtain rod up on the big long wall and hung it up. And sure enough, that helped quite a bit. And so now I got one of those too for uh for I've got a big window to my right and uh, uh <laughs> this is really mean to the no castaways but when I really care about my audio is when I'm doing screencast online videos and that's when I put the acoustic blanket up I don't do it for this show. <laughs> so I don't know whether I'm getting much echo off of it at all but uh this is what it good. sounds like. Yeah, no, it sounds good and I couldn't tell you that was the case. So once I found out my proof of concept works I ordered a quilt to size that is just printed. It's not hand sewn and it'll look nice. It has tents and moose and bears on it and it'll. Uh, oh, that's instead of the moving blanket. To. Right. So the moving blankets will uh, go away and I will have actually a nice looking quilt in here. Oh, okay. Okay. Now you've got a window stuff. behind you. What, what did you do with the window? So I took um, curtains from another room and put them in here, which is why they're a little bit short. To see if actually, so the blanket wasn't quite enough. 
mm-hmm. still sounded a little bit too much echo in here. So then I put curtains up from the other room and sure enough, that helped a lot. Yeah. So since, those, couch since that window is directly behind you, I can see that that would be a problem because your mic is right in front of you. It's going to be echoing back and forth. I mean, at least you're not facing the window, but it's still not a bad angle. Right. And then the couch is behind there too. So and I that spray painted that. I dressed it up a little bit to make it nicer because it used to be outside. And so now I have the squishy couch, which also Wait a minute, helps you absorb spray the sound. painted a couch. I had an outdoor couch that I was not thrilled with. Um, so I was going to get rid of it. And then I thought, why not clean it up, make it look better, spray paint it, put a nice blanket on it and just put it up in the recording room. So I'd have a place to think or sit down and (laughs) review notes or something and absorb sound and absorb sound. So it was a big acoustic panel that was back there. So I worked a couple of weeks on making that couch better and that was part of it. And it still was good. It got better. It got a lot better, but there were still some parts that just weren't quite right. So in reviewing it, someone suggested that um, you put acoustic foam on your ceiling, which sounded like it was going to fall on my head. (laughs) It was kind of ugly because now I'm back in the foam tunnel again. And so, uh, and, and so then I was looking on Amazon and I thought, you know what I need up there? Clouds. Wouldn't it be fun if I had clouds on my ceiling that would break up the sound, but then they'd be fun because they'd be like weather. And sure enough, <laughs> that's what I found. This is exactly why I wanted to have Jill on. She sent me a photo and she's got these colorful, puffy clouds. They're they're what are what are they made out of? They're they're big spheres. But but with a lot of interwoven kind of stuff. So there's a lot of spots, stuff for the noise to get scrambled up in. Right. Yeah. They are from Amazon. Someone makes them. They're about $35 a piece, but it is essentially quilt batting with some oh. uh, wires in there and some LED lights interwoven into it. And it has a remote and USB plugins. And so I put those up on the ceiling. And sure enough, that was the last piece that... Breaking up the ceiling noise made the room better. So these are designed for this purpose. They're designed for teenage rooms. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I just thought if the goal is to break up the sound, these would do that. So uh, are they smart lights too? Or uh, they, just- they're not smart lights. They have an app that doesn't integrate with anything. And there's a remote that it comes with in case you don't want to use the app but it's not smart at all. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's a little bit smart that it has an app. Yeah. Okay. You just mean it doesn't do any automation. No. So you can have um, colorful thunderstorms or just black and white thunderstorms. Yeah. So whatever you like. And you've chosen purple and green and pink and blue and. Right. (laughs) That's really, that looks cool. Yeah. How are they attached to the ceiling though? Um, It's just um, uh, sticky hooks. Oh, that it all comes with. It comes with everything you need to get it on the ceiling, plug into a wall or plug into a USB connection. And I thought they really did a nice job considering it's $35 and it really works. So Yeah. And and so how many of them did you buy? Three. Okay. And so it goes across the recording area. And so when my friend comes to record with me, I'll pull the whole desk out. She'll sit on the other side. She'll sit on the other side and then we can record together. 
Okay. Okay. That's really, really neat. Now, I still don't understand. Why do you have two rooms? Now, this seems like a perfect room to to write, think, record, and edit. I could. I I absolutely could. Yeah. It's just, like I said, downstairs is just more comfy. I'm more used to hanging out downstairs. Okay. I have a fireplace in winter and a Okay. Okay. And a change of venue too, right? Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with this. This will also act as a craft room. I'm going to put a table in so that a sewing machine can go in. And so it will also have a dual purpose for crafting. That's so funny that that all this time you've had this this room just sitting there dormant waiting for, for guests who aren't here. Hey, right. they could they could sleep on the uh, on the outdoor couch if they want. <laughs> yeah, it folds down actually into a futon. So it, oh, it also would double as a bed. Okay, there you go. There you go. Well, right. this is really cool. It, I got to tell you, it sounds fantastic. It's uh, this is definitely uh, uh, going to be going to be a great enhancement for you. And the idea that you could record it, you could do editing in here if you wanted to. Absolutely, I could uh, do so. And it's just a nicer environment to be in. You're right. I might just hang out. We'll see how it goes because this is the first time I've actually used it. But maybe it is nice enough to just stay up here and do everything with the podcast and you know, be done. But I know when you're trying to podcast, you're always trying to find an acceptable sound and people put themselves in closets and do all sorts of things to get it right. And I just hope to find a pleasant way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. This is nice. Now, um, do you, what are you going to do with the other room? Does the other room get to be a playroom or something? Oh, the other room is my living room. That's just me and my- No, the recording room that you had. Oh, this is the recording room I had. I just was sitting in a little corner of the guest bedroom. Oh, 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 okay, okay. I was just scrunched in there. Okay, and sitting in that phone booth. Okay, I didn't realize it was all in the same room, and now it just sounds better. One last idea for you um, on yeah. the uh, on the curtains and, and the window situation. What Steve did for me is he had uh, grommets sewn into the uh, moving blanket, and I, he put a hook on either side of the window, and so we can just hook it up there and have it cover the window and then drop it down. Gotcha. So that- I, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And I might do that. I also have to my left, which you can't see, closets, two walk-in closets. Mm. And if I felt like this sound wasn't good enough, then I'm, was, I have another rod that I'm going to hang the moving blankets on when the other blanket comes. Okay. You know, uh, I think it was Dave Hamilton was at the house. I want to say it was Dave. And he said, Allison, why don't you just open the closet? And that's an obvious thing. But then I, I took all the clothes out of it and moved, put a, put in shelving instead for my nerd stuff. So now it would probably make just as much noise. But I probably should open that whenever I'm recording. <laughs> no, that makes sense. And I do have clothes in there, all my dress clothes for yeah. work and conferences. So you don't need to cover there. it up. Just open right? it. Right? Yeah. Just, and, you'll, and you'll deaden the sound even more. Yeah. No, that's Dang a great it, idea. You sound better than me now. Now I'm going to have to up my game. Everybody's going to say, why don't you cover the window for us, Allison? Well, and your venue is so um, nice looking from YouTube that it just is a pleasant place to be. And that's what really, you inspired me to up my game. Okay. Okay. Well, it is technically still a bedroom and I can clear all of my chair out and everything for when the kids come. So it it does still function as that, which is nice. So, well, this has been really cool. I'm going to put the uh, photo in the show notes that you sent me, if that's okay. And uh, if you can send me a link to the, uh, those crazy cloud lights, I think that'd be fun to include. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot, Jill. All right. Thanks. Bye. 
Well, after Jill and I recorded that segment, she'd sent me a note to let me know that her friend came over and they recorded their very first podcast work together. And she said that this uh, her friend could tell the second she walked into the room how great the sound was. They got a bunch of things recorded and she said it sounded great. Now, what's important to note is that her friend has a background in radio, so her endorsement made Jill feel confident that the room is ready for recording. That's a pretty good endorsement of her new design. Now, there is no blog post for this conversation, but I dropped a couple of photos into the blog post for this episode of the NoSillaCast uh, into the show notes showing the before and after photos of her new studio. In the before image, you can see the anechoic chamber cave she had recorded in before, and in the after image, you can see her pretty colored clouds she put up to absorb sound. I cannot imagine how much more enjoyable it is to record with this new setup. Welcome to part four of my Tiny Mac Tips. This is an ongoing series I started in order to teach my dear friend, Jill from the Northwoods, who you just heard from, how to move from an adequate Mac user to a proficient one. Our first tip is about the Mac App Store. Now, Mac App Store updates are a constant presence in our Mac lives because if developers are doing their jobs, they work to improve their apps. They need to keep up with changes Apple makes to macOS, and they have to keep ahead of security problems, so these updates just keep coming. Now, while constantly having to run updates is tedious, you really don't want apps that aren't being kept up to date. I love the Mac App Store, and I get a lot of my apps through this convenient mechanism. But have you ever noticed sometimes it gets confused? The other day, I dusted off my 2016 MacBook Pro after several months of disuse. The main purpose was to run the latest macOS security update. When my Mac was up to date, I decided I might as well update the apps. But the Mac App Store said I had zero updates. Well, you and I both know that's not very probable. I remembered then this little tip. Dave Hamilton has said more than once on the Mac Geek Gab that the Mac App Store is actually a web browser under the hood. That means you can force it to refresh. While I was on the updates page, I tried Command-R and I suddenly had 19 updates waiting for me. Now, hopefully you won't need this trick, but just tuck that one back in your little part of your brain that the App Store is just a web browser and it can be refreshed. I know system preferences are going away in macOS Ventura to be placed, replaced with the new settings app to mirror iOS, but many of us will stay with macOS Monterey for a fair bit of time before moving on to the new OS. While we're still on macOS Monterey or before, I've got a tip on how to make system preferences easier to navigate. When I look at the grid of icons and system preferences organized by some bizarre idea of categories that only Apple seems to understand, I can never find what I'm looking for. For example, I know what the displays icon looks like. I know how displays is spelled, but I can span, scan my eyes back and forth five times across that grid and never be able to see the icon. I've been using a Mac for 38 years and I've never gotten comfortable with the layout of system preferences. Well, guess what? It turns out you can actually view system preferences alphabetically, and there are three ways to do it. First, if you select the view menu from system preferences, down drops a list of all the system preferences in alphabetical order right there. Now, I don't know how long it's been in the view menu because it literally never occurred to me that system preferences even had menus. I never looked at the menu bar until someone showed me this tip. I wish I could remember who showed it to me so I could thank them. Also, in System Preferences, if you look at the top of the toolbar, there's a little 4x3 grid of dots, and that represents the grid of icons on the homepage of System Preferences. If you're inside a preference pane, such as Displays, and you click on that little grid, it takes you back to the home screen of System Preferences. For ages, that's all I've ever done with it. 
But one day, instead of just clicking on the grid icon, for some reason, I clicked and held on it. And a menu dropped down with all of the system preference panes in alphabetical order. That means you could jump from displays to network without even passing through that homepage. Now, if you're as enamored with the alphabetical listing of system preferences as I am, ideally they would be in alphabetical order on that homepage. In that view menu I told you about that I never noticed was there before, you have the option to change it from organized by category to organize alphabetically. As I said, I don't know how long that's been there, but it was life-changing for me when I alphabetized my system preferences. And I kind of use this as a party trick to show other Mac users because uh, for some reason, it's not surfaced easily that this has been there for some length of time. In part three of my Tiny Mac Tip series, I taught you how to turn on the window title icons in your Finder windows. Those are sometimes called proxy icons. This is the little folder icon that you can use to drag into Save As dialog boxes to save to an already open folder. Now in Apple's infinite wisdom, the window title icons are hidden and are only revealed when you hover for a while next to the folder name at the top of the window. Anyway, whether you've left them hidden or always viewable, there's something else fun you can do with them that I didn't tell you about before. Let's say you're buried five folders down in your documents folder and you wanna go up a couple of levels. You could use the back arrow several times to get back up, or you can hold down the command key and select the window title icon. As soon as you do that, you'll see a drop-down menu showing you the full path of folders back to the root of your drive, sort of upside down. For example, I sync my desktop and documents folder to iCloud, so the very bottom of the drop-down says iCloud Drive, then above it it says Documents, and then it says PodFeed, it says No Silicast, you know, it, it, I'm basically navigating from the bottom up into my folders. Using the command key on the Windows title icon is something I do so often that I, it's just an instinct now, and that's why I forgot to tell you about it before. If remembering the command key is hard for you, or you don't like your window title icon showing, don't forget the tip from part three where you can view the file path at the bottom of all Finder windows. In that tip, I explained that you can use the icons in the path bar to also navigate up the path. Now, I prefer the command key on the window title icon method because I bury my stuff so deep in the file structure that the titles of the folders get cut off down in the path bar. When they're in there as a dropdown, the file names are full width to read in all their glory. If you're a keyboard junkie, it can be really frustrating when there's a menu item you use often in an application and there's no keyboard shortcut for it. Luckily, there's a feature in macOS that allows you to add keyboard shortcuts to menus even if the developer didn't include one. Let's take a look at a standard Mac app as an example, text edit. Most of the commands have keyboard shortcuts, but view show tab bar does not. This is a bit of a contrived example because you probably don't need to toggle this menu often enough to need a keyboard shortcut, but you know, work with me here. I wanted to pick something that everybody has. To add a keyboard shortcut, open System Preferences, Keyboard, and then select the Shortcuts tab. On the left side of the pane, there's a list of things under Shortcuts, and I want you to choose App Shortcuts. I'll say that again, App Shortcuts. On the right side of the pane, you'll see a list of any shortcuts that may have already been created. Click the plus button below this pane. This will open a small screen where you answer three easy questions. The first question is to choose the application in which you want to have the shortcut function. You can actually create a shortcut for all applications or a specific application. From the dropdown that has all of your installed applications, choose text edit. Next, you need to enter the exact name of the menu command you want to add. And when they say you have to use the exact name, 
they mean it. I mean, you got to, if it's leading caps, it's got to be leading caps. If it's got dashes in it, it's got to have dashes in it. Make sure the spaces are right. It has to be written exactly as it looks. So in our example, we want to use view and then the drop down to show tab bar with leading caps. In order to convey to the shortcuts menu that you want to select from a drop down, you use a minus followed by the greater than sign. So like dash greater than. Our exact command then for, th for the view show tab bar would be view dash greater than show tab bar leading caps and there's no spaces between the words and that dash greater than. Okay, that wasn't too painful. All we have to do is tell it what keyboard shortcut we want to assign. I chose control option command V. Now you want to test it and that's where you'll realize that you made a typo or you left a space in the command and you go back and you fix it and you test again. At least that's the process I follow. I forgot and left spaces in between things. Anyway, let me give you a perfect example of where this feature has helped me out. My favorite screenshot tutorial app is Folga from Folga.me. It's a really cool app and it does a great job of helping me create tutorial guides, but it's a pretty non-standard uh, Mac app. Alexi is a rock star of a developer who actually begs for improvement ideas for his app. Seriously, he sent out an email recently to all of his customers entitled Help Folga, and the only message in there said, please answer one simple question, what is the single most important feature you are missing in Folga? I mean, seriously, who does that? Anyway, I digress. One thing was missing for me in Folga was that it doesn't have the standard macOS app keyboard shortcut to open settings. It's supposed to be command comma to open up settings. No problem. I opened up system preferences, keyboard shortcuts, app shortcuts, and I added the standard keyboard shortcut. Now, one thing you might be wondering is whether it will be annoying to have to remember these keyboard shortcuts or have to dig down into the system preference pane to refresh your memory of what you chose. Nope, none of that folder all is necessary because macOS puts your fancy new keyboard shortcut right into the menu for the app just like it was, in, it was native from the developer. The only tricky bit about adding keyboard shortcuts to apps is when there's a submenu, and that often is called with an ellipsis, or is it ellipses? Anyway, the three dots to get to the next screen. Now, it's not hard to do this, but you have to get it exactly right. So rather than belabor it in this article, I put a link in the show notes to the Apple support article that explains in detail for when you do need to do that. When I open Apple Maps on my Mac and I zoom in on the city street level, the text is often too small for me to read. I zoom in on the map a little more and for a brief second the text is larger and then it's repainted at the same tiny size. My vision isn't that of a 20-year-old, but when I had cataract surgery, I, showed, I chose 50 centimeters as my focal distance because that's computer distance, so it's really, really good. Another place I'm often frustrated is maybe trying to see some detail in an online image and it's low resolution or the picture's just too small and I want to make something out, but I, I feel like if it was simply bigger, I'd still be able to see more. And maybe you've just passed 40 and find that you could use a little help with smaller text on occasion and you haven't given in to the inevitable glasses that are in your future, but you just don't need to have all of the fonts embiggened or to lower your overall screen resolution just yet. There's a quick trick for these infrequent needs. With this trick, you'll be able to zoom in very quickly on your screen to see something and then zoom right back out to a normal view. Open System Preferences, Accessibility, Zoom. Check the box labeled Use Scroll Gesture with Modifier Keys to Zoom. Below that, you'll see a dropdown to choose a modifier key. I use Control, which I think is the default. So if you don't change any of the other settings, now, hold down the control key on your keyboard and use your mouse or trackpad to scroll up. 
As soon as you do that, you'll see your entire screen zoom in centered wherever you left your cursor. To go back to normal, hold the control key down again, and this time just scroll back down so you can scroll in, out, in, out, in, out. It's great. This setting is one of the first things I change on a new Mac installation. It never gets in your way when you don't need it, but it's always at your fingertips when you do see something wee tiny on the screen that you'd really like to see much closer. Now, there are a couple of other options to go with this feature. There's an option below the modifier key dropdown entitled Zoom Style. By default, it's set to full screen, which is the behavior that I just described. You may prefer one of the other options, which are split screen and picture in picture. Split screen puts a thin slice of your screen across the top, showing where you're zooming in. I personally think it's a weird representation, but if you like it that way, you go girl. Picture in picture seems a little bit more logical to me. When you use your modifier key and scroll, you'll see a box around your cursor within which the screen zooms in and out. If you move your cursor near the edge of the box, it will start to move with you so you can move the picture in picture precisely to the thing you want to see more clearly. However, because it doesn't move instantly with your cursor, it feels laggy to me, and for that reason, I don't favor it, because you have to wait till you get to the edge of the box for it to start to move. But you know what? Perhaps you'll find it less disconcerting than having the entire screen zoom, which is the way I like it. Give these options a play and see which one works for you. The only trick is to remember the modifier key when you need to zoom in to see something more clearly and keep that optometrist at bay for a wee bit longer. Now, speaking of hotkeys, did you know that you can change your Finder view with hotkeys? There are four views available in Finder windows. There's Icon View, which is self-explanatory. List View, which is where you open those little disclosure triangles next to folders to see inside them. Column View, which I believe is the correct view, where selecting a folder expands the items within it to the right. And then there's Gallery View, which used to be called Cover Flow, where you get a big icon view of the selected item and then small icons in a row below it. Whether you agree with me about the one true Finder view, or you're some kind of deviant who likes one of the other three, it's good to know that you can use a keyboard shortcut, also known as a hotkey, to change views. The reason it's good to know is that Apple seems to have abandoned the idea of maintaining our preferences for a given view when rebooting or logging out or even opening a new folder. The four hotkeys are Command 1 through Command 4 to trigger icon, list, column, and gallery views in that order. Let's just simplify things. Just learn Command 3 because that's the one that triggers column view. You're welcome. Here's another tip that has to do with these views. When you open a Finder window in column view, also known as the correct view, the columns are, are either too wide or too narrow for the list of items within. Wouldn't it be nice if the columns were sized just right? If you have your scroll bar set to automatically appear when you start to scroll, that's in System Preferences General Show Scroll Bars, we talked about that, I think, in the last set of tips, you'll see a plain vertical line between your columns. When you place your cursor over the line, simply double-click on the line, and the column to the left will right-size to just exactly fit the name of your files. If you've navigated down a few folders, you may have many columns that need to be right-sized. There's a tip for that, too. Hold down the magic option key and then double click on any one of the column separator lines and they will all resize to be appropriate for their own content. Now, if you have your scroll bars set to always show like I do, there's a slight difference in how and to right size your columns. Instead of a vertical line, you'll have a vertical channel that's there to hold the scroll bar, whether or not it's visible at the time. Like you might have a short list so it doesn't have a scroll bar. There's still this little channel. You can't double click on that channel to set the column width. 
Instead, at the bottom of the channel, you'll see two vertical lines. Double-click or option-double-click those two tick marks to right-size all your columns. Now, sadly, Apple made a decision in Big Sur to make these changes not stick when you close your Finder window. The next time you open the exact same folder, the columns will be the wrong size. Now, there is one method of changing the columns that the column width that does stick. If you hold down the Option key and simply drag to change the column width without double-clicking, this changes all columns to be the same width. If you close the window after doing this maneuver, reopening any Finder window in Column View will have all of the columns set to the width you just defined. I wish it was possible to right-size all columns and have it stick as a default, but I've not been able to find a way to do that. If anyone knows, I am all ears. Now, I'm sure having fun doing this Tiny Mac Tip series. I've got more than I could fit in this week, so stay tuned. And of course, I'll get to redo at least half of them in a month or two when macOS Ventura comes out and changes system preferences into settings, and we can't find anything. But at least there will be entirely new tips to teach. Hi, this is Bruce from East Tennessee with a quick review of Beeswax Racks. First of all, the problem to be solved. I'm back to working in an office most days of the week. I bring my lunch to work, partly as a way to save money, partly as a way to save time, and mostly because I prefer what we cook to most things available from fast foods or restaurants. But I've also been working in climate change science for the past 15 years, and I'm trying to reduce my use of plastics, particularly single-use plastics. Those darn sandwich bags are, however, definitely quick and useful. And sometimes I don't have just the right size of the various reusable plastic or glass containers for something. While on a vacation recently, we visited the Kew Royal Botanic Gardens near London. And I saw something called a beeswax wrap. I think I've heard of these before, but it passed by. So... I do like buying things, generally, and buying things from the Kew Gardens gift shop is a way to support one of my favorite places. So we bought a package which had three wraps, one each at 20 by 20 centimeters, 30 by 30 centimeters, and 40 by 40 centimeters, or roughly 8 inches square, 12 inches square, and 16 inches square. The wraps are cotton cloth impregnated with beeswax that's been softened with a bit of oil. I've used mine a few times now, and I love them. They're lightweight, and I've used them to wrap up sandwiches, make little baggies for some cut-up veggies or for some fruit, or to wrap up some leftovers at home. The particular ones I got are from a company called the Beeswax Wrap Company, based out of the Cotswolds in England. So, folks on that side of the Atlantic can take this as an enthusiastic recommendation of their product. Doing a bit of searching, there are a variety of these available through online retailers. I have to do a bit of digging to see which ones I might want to buy, get a few more. And I do see that there are some that sell these in longer sheets, like say 13 inches wide by 39 inches long. So I could cut that to make more of sizes I find useful. So I've stumbled into these, and I'm sold on them as a way to have something that's much more multi-use and from renewable resources. If that's something that appeals to you, I encourage you to look into beeswax wraps and ping me on the Podfeet Slack if you find ones here in the U.S. that you like. Thanks. 
Well, this was great, Bruce. I love this idea. Uh, my daughter, Lindsay, has been a big influence on me in trying to figure out ways to, to make less waste. And I've tried a couple of different things that are working pretty well, but this beeswax wrap idea sounded great. So I went out to Amazon and I just picked a random page. Like there was a ton of different beeswax wraps and I picked one and I got it. It was horrible. I mean, like, I, I don't write one-star reviews. I had to write a one-star review. First of all, it didn't stick to the bowl. You're supposed to kind of heat it up with your hands and, and stick it down. didn't stick to the bowl. However, it did put some sticky substance on my hand that I could not get off. Like, three times I had to wash my hands with soap and water, and it was still a little bit sticky. I was considering turpentine. It was that bad. So uh, I did write to Bruce and told him about that and asked him, so it, you don't get sticky on your hands when you use yours? And he said, no, definitely not. So I'm hoping that uh, some other people will try some other uh, different wraps and uh, maybe somebody can find us one that's uh, in the U.S. that will work that is not creepy like that. Anyway, I did return mine, but I'm really hoping somebody finds a good uh, good set in uh, in the United States so we can get some here too. But good on you for England. They get to have it first. Before we kick in our very special security bits, let me make a quick pledge break, as wheels would call it. This show has no ads because of the generosity of listeners who choose to support the show financially. I don't have to pretend to like products and make you think I like them just to get money to make the show a success. If you'd like to help out like these wonderful folks, head on over to podfeed.com slash Patreon to become a regular contributor, or if you'd prefer a one-time donation from time to time, go to podfeed.com slash PayPal. I thank you in advance for your patronage. Hi folks, I'm Bart Bouchotz and welcome to another Security Bits. And unlike the last few, although you're hearing my voice first, this is not a solo show. And there is no Alison. So what's going on? Well, we promised a special guest a while ago. I have me a special guest. Tom Merritt, welcome to Security Bits. Hey, uh, it's good to be here. I don't, I don't have to do an Alison imitation, do I? It's just... Oh, just say very with a very high-pitched note once and you're done. <laughs> with a very slight, slight security bias. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> bias towards the truth. Okay, there we go. We need that in this segment. Oh, goodness me, we need that in this segment. Um, there's a lot of bias out there and very little of it seems to be in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll try anyway. Indeed. Well, before we get stuck into the more details, there is some follow-up of some stuff we've been tracking over the longer time. Um... It was quite, it made big news around the entire world, really, when the Conti ransomware gang decided that the middle of a pandemic was a good time to flatten the Irish Health Service Executive, or HSE, who are basically our nation's healthcare system. That, that was really nice of them. Yeah, well, that was lovely. Yeah, I am happy to say that the United States are also cranky at them because they didn't only hack our healthcare system, they hacked a lot of things. There is now a $10 million reward being offered by the US government, so fingers crossed that shakes them loose. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, our friends over at the NSO group are having a bit of a shake-up. Um, apparently it's for a bright new future. Everyone else is like, I think they want to sell themselves. They have a change of CEO and are 100 fewer employees. 
that's the kind of thing you do when you're polishing things up to be sold. Uh, I, I worked at Tech TV when they were getting ready to be sold, and the CEO left, and he didn't get replaced, and they did layoffs, and and lo and behold, sold to Comcast uh, not too long after that. Yeah, I think there's another shoe about to whack us on the head. I'd be very yep. curious who buys the leftovers. Um, there's a story that I've put a fire extinguisher icon next to uh, because there is perhaps too much hair on firing going on in the world. So. The headline, uh, the headline I picked to link in the show notes because it's uh, the least over the top is Apple's secure lockdown mode may reduce web browsing anonymity, which is a factually true and b not completely setting their hair on fire. But there was a lot of, so, you know, lockdown mode makes users, you know, harms privacy and stuff. Mm. Basically, if you turn off all of the advanced features in your browser, your browser looks different. And mm-hmm. a website can detect the fact that you appear to be browsing from the 80s. And if your IP address stays the same and there's only like five people on planet Earth with lockdown mode enabled, then that becomes browser fingerprinting. So, yes, there is a reduction in anonymity of a sort. You can be tracked from site to site, but they don't know who you are. And with all of that extra security, you still have all of that extra security. And, the and what does lockdown mode get us again? What's, what's the idea there? The idea is that you turn off advanced features so that your attack surface becomes a teeny tiny little postage stamp. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So basically, it sounds to me like uh, you're saying to keep folks from getting into my browser, I've made my browser slightly more fingerprintable. That's, that is it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. So and- it's a trade off. It's a trade-off, and if uh, lockdown mode becomes quite popular, then that problem goes away. Mm-hmm. Because every mm-hmm. browser in lockdown the, yeah. mode will look identical to each other because they're basically, they have no features. <laughs> because there's no subscu- security through being obscure? <laughs> Unfortunately not, Tom. It, it, yeah. oh, if only. Oh, if only. <laughs> All of those, I'm trying to remember... Um, Oh, someone's first law. Uh, basically, everyone thinks they can invent their own better security, but they can't or something like that. It's, anyway. mm. um, and then finally, just a little reminder. We've talked about this story mm-hmm. quite a few times over the years. Um, just a reminder that you don't plug anything of yours into a cable or a plug provided by someone who's not you. Because it is mm. amazingly easy to fill that cable or a plug with naughtiness. Um, <laughs> one security researcher made a lot of waves when about, I would say at this age, five, if not more years ago, they did a proof of concept at one of the hacking conferences where they took an Apple lightning cable and they managed to I- insert into that lightning cable a teeny tiny little circuit that could do all sorts of spying by just plugging you into the cable. Well, that has now become a commercial product for uh, penetration testers and so forth to use for non-nefarious ends. And it now has things like Wi-Fi capability, and it, it's become a really powerful tool. Uh, so really, don't plug in cables. It may look identical to an Apple cable. It can still do a lot of harm. And maybe the maybe the fact that the cables are going away is a good thing. Yeah. Why, I mean, not that wireless isn't its own attack surface, but uh, you're, you're, you're more trained to be suspicious of connecting to access points and Bluetooth and such than you are to think, oh, well, this cable, it's just a wire, right? We grew, grew up with cables being dumb. So uh, yep. it's sort of it's sort of natural to want to trust them. You got to fight that. Exactly. And of course, what people forget is that those pins on those connectors, they are wired straight to the motherboard of your device. You are literally allowing something outside of your phone <laughs> direct motherboard access. 
That is not uh, good. You know what? You know what a rubber ducky is, right? I do. Yes. From yeah. Hack Five. I mean, I I sometimes try to point out to people, like if I show them a picture or if I have one with me, like look how small this is. Now imagine just putting a cable on it. Yeah. You'd never know. Yeah. Yeah. And if people don't know the rubber ducky, uh, you plug it in and you see it in lots of TV shows and movies. Uh, you plug it into a USB port and it can just capture everything that's happening on that machine. It's basically a teeny tiny little version of, is it Kali Linux or one of the hacking Linux distros? Mm-hmm. I think it's Kali. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a teeny, teeny, tiny little, like, um, yeah, it's a teeny, tiny computer running a special version of Linux and it just hoovers up everything it can. It's just yep. like, I will have a look at RAM. Oh, look, some keys. Yoink. Yeah, just imagine every USB port, every USB cable that you don't own and have not vetted and did not come fresh out of a box is a rubber ducky, right? Yeah. Waiting to hoover up everything on your on your machine. That, yeah, that is a pretty darn good, uh, that's a really good way of thinking about it, yeah. Okay, so we have two deep dives to get into today. Um, are they good news or bad news? Eh, they're news. Mm. Um, the first one is one of those really frustrating stories that's getting an awful lot of traction out there, and I wish it wouldn't, because actually we don't know anything, or we don't know nearly as much as we should. So there's a lot of headlines saying that VPNs on iOS are broken, and I don't think it's that clear. They might be, they really, really might be, or everything might be working exactly as intended. Both- I, 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 looking at this story, am willing to say VPNs on iOS might be leaky. Yeah, but they may be, inte- yeah, it's complicated. And that, well, yeah, yeah, you're right. So the first, I have a disclaimer at the top, which I don't usually do, but basically there's one thing I'm certain about. I don't know what's going on here and I don't know anyone else. <laughs> right. So our best guess here at what we think is happening, or I say we, me, I've been doing, this is all on me. If I turn out to be completely wrong, it's me, not Tom. So a security researcher released a very snarky report where they did some testing and they showed... VPNs, when connected to ITS, some of the traffic was clearly going around the VPN tunnel. The researcher didn't try to figure out exactly what caused it to happen or go into any great detail because he felt that was Apple's job, which is not unreasonable. The snark I take issue with, but, you know, saying here, Apple, you figure this out, that I don't take issue with. Apple said, well, actually... You're right, we did know about this since 2019. We implemented a whole bunch of new APIs uh, and people writing VPNs need to just use those APIs. And the VPN vendors were like, yeah, but those APIs don't do what we want, so we didn't use them. What? You're supposed to? Do do we know what their beef is there? I seem to have a distant recollection of why they didn't want to use the APIs, but I don't remember what it was. See, I tried to find my own show notes on this because I know I talked to Alison about this at the time. And unfortunately, searching site colon www.podfee.com for security bits Apple VPN found about 500 posts. And Googling the internet in general for Apple VPN bypass was no more helpful. So I can't bloody well find the source. So I'm going on my best possible memory. But as I remember it, Apple decided that third-party apps should not be able to intercept the network traffic of really important stuff going back to Apple's own servers to keep the security of iOS up to date. And so there are a bunch of processes at the very... Now, it's not everything Apple. It's just really low-level stuff that intentionally go around the VPN because Apple have secured those channels independently and they are very important for the safety of iOS users. And at the time, that was very controversial. And I came down on the side of, yeah, it's a trade-off, 
but actually I don't think third parties do get to beat the OS. I, th- I think actually that's quite a wise thing in a lockdown OS like iOS. And so the fact that Apple's API allowed them to force a network reset, basically what Apple gave them was a way to say, when you turn on this VPN, all network connections should be turned off and turned on again so that they'll re-communicate through the VPN. So they basically renegotiate a new connection through the VPN. But Apple's a few core kernel-level processes do not do that. Mm-hmm. And that was considered to be not a fix. And therefore, the VPN vendors say the bug is unaddressed. And Apple say, no, it is addressed. We have very carefully decided what is and isn't going through VPNs. And so you can get to a point where everyone is telling the truth, and yet we still don't really know what's going on. So my best theory of the case is that it it would appear that the very latest version of the VPN under test does use the API, because now the only traffic that goes around the VPN is going to Akami, no, not Akami, um, AWS and Apple. And Mm -hmm. AWS do work for Apple. So there's going to Mm -hmm. Apple and to Apple. So nothing that is not Apple is going around the VPN anymore. So as best as I can tell, it now appears to be working exactly as it always should. And the only thing that changed was that the VPN being tested started to use the API. So I think Apple's telling the truth. They fixed it three years ago. And the researcher was telling the truth. He did see stuff going around the VPN. But the VPN vendors are still cranky because everything should be everything in their opinion. So do you, you want my take on this? I, absolutely, I do. I, I feel like uh, this is classic Apple behavior and your attitude about it is going to be probably very similar to your typical run of the day attitude towards what Apple does, which is Apple says, sure, we could send everything to the VPN, uh, but that slows things down. It makes things tricky. It causes problems with our connections and we're trustworthy. Uh, We're the ones running your operating system for goodness sake. So we, in our infinite wisdom, very carefully chose things that would still be secure and not leak out information uh, that are going to be sent to us. And we would know who you are anyway. So there's no loss of security we're Apple, trust us, this is going to make for a better user experience and not reduce your security. And purists who say, well, gosh, Apple, that's nice of you, but I would like to be in charge of that decision, not you, want everything to go through the VPN. Yep. I, I, I This is a Rorschach story. Yeah, you will see absolutely. out of it exactly what you think you should see. <laughs> Apple is saying, trust us, we know best. You already trust us because you're running our operating system. And and these researchers are saying, I don't trust anyone, you or anyone else. I also am not sure that the people shouting the loudest are actually iOS users. They probably may be or, Android and Linux be, users. <laughs> they wouldn't be trusting iOS in the first place, right? So they're probably using Android. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's a lot of that goes on, right? Taking offense on other people's behalf. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not even defending Apple when I say that. I'm just laying it out there. Oh, yeah. Like this, yeah. this is what they're doing, yeah. I entirely understand that Apple's paternalistic attitude rubs some people up the wrong way. I work with many of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't, I don't see that as a, as like they're wrong. I just see that as you have a worldview and I have a worldview, or they are not the same. Great, right. <laughs> we're friends, right? And we are. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it's just we've we've long ago stopped trying to convince each other, and it's just funny, um, particularly because some of them are really big into privacy, and they're all Google users. And I'm like, you do understand 
how ridiculous that is, right? <laughs> well, because it's all about flavor. To me, it's all about flavors. It's like right. I I like my ramen spicy. I like my ramen sweet. Like you're not neither of you are wrong. It's just you know how 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 you like the flavor of your operating system. You want to have all the control and do the troubleshooting yourself. Someone else is like, you know what? I'd like it if I didn't have to do as much troubleshooting and still feel secure. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just another quick aside that I like to make whenever I talk about VPNs, because a lot of people think that a VPN's job is to take all traffic and wrap it completely. And that is actually only a VPN's job sometimes. Most of the time, a VPN's job is to send some traffic through itself and some traffic intentionally not through itself. It's called a split tunnel. And it's really, really common. Um, the two most common scenarios are when you connect to the VPN, you can still use your printer because most VPNs will allow the LAN to bypass the VPN. And the other one is good corporate VPNs only route traffic to the corporation through the VPN and leave all other traffic well and truly alone. And that makes for a much better working from home experience because it means that your Netflix and your Wordle and your Call of Duty are going through your home network as normal and your exchange online or your exchange or whatever the heck you're doing for work is going through the VPN and only your work stuff is going through the VPN. Corporate IT don't have to deal with all of your bandwidth twice, once coming in and once going out. And your privacy is much better protected because your not work stuff is not going to work. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and, and this kind of illustrates the trade-off it used to be if I had a VPN running on my phone uh, and I tried to airplay to Apple TV, it would fail. Yes. Uh, but it, it no longer fails to do that because they changed how the data gets to the Apple TV. It's not simply going out through Wi-Fi with all the rest of the network traffic so the VPN doesn't block it, which is data that is not going through the VPN, right? It's going to my right. Apple TV. I want it to go to my Apple TV. I trust my Apple TV. I'm glad it's going to my Apple TV. Uh, but it is, it's another example of data that's leaky, right? It's it's going around the I'm VPN. I'm not sure it's leaky. I think it's by design, right? So open yeah, VPN, yeah. if you look at the actual protocol, if you configure an open VPN server, when a client connects, that server will push a config at the client. And that config mm -hmm. will actually give a routing table to the client that will tell the client, I want you to route this to me. I don't want you to route this other stuff to me. And so when I connect to our work VPN on my iPhone, my traffic, it's only my work traffic that goes to the work VPN, mm -hmm. which is why things like AirPlay work absolutely perfectly, yeah. as does my printer and everything else I'm doing around the house. And in fact, it's really convenient because my speakers are all AirPlay. I kind of like having my music on my nice Sonos <laughs> instead of coming through my tinny laptop speaker. Yeah, I, it's simple to think of a VPN as a tunnel that all your network traffic goes through. But it's good to remember when a story like this comes out that that's not actually true. It's, yeah, it's a tunnel with, with a, a road sign that basically says these things go through me. Everything else doesn't. So it's like a junction. It's added a junction yeah. to your network yeah. and it's put up a road sign. And if you're using something like NordVPN with the intention of hiding everything from everyone, then the, the sign probably says LAN left, everything else right. Mm -hmm. But if you're using a corporate VPN, it probably says corporate traffic left, everything else the other way. Right. One in the uh, the NordVPN example, it's just a pedestrian walkway and it doesn't even go over the hill. So you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Anyway, yes. So that is that is that story. If you're hearing people light their hair on fire, it's definitely not worth lighting your hair on fire about. And if anyone is really certain about what's going on, 
If they actually are, please share, but they're probably not. So deep dive number two, I'm afraid, is also clear as mud. Um, this is one of those stories which, in when I only read the headline, I thought, oh, cool, this is a really fun story. This proves all of my preconceptions. I'll retweet. Oh, hang on a second. This proves all of my preconceptions. Maybe I should double check <laughs> it before I do anything else. So I did. Whew. Am I ever glad I dug deeper? Because I would have looked like an idiot if I tweeted this out. Because there's no there here. So you may have heard lots of people say that Google track way more than Apple. Apple is the best and Google is the worst. And there are numbers and they line up in that way. But there's, well, I was going to say there's a lot more going on. Unfortunately, there's a lot less going on. So <laughs> yeah. there was... In, in fact, the, the assertion may be true, but the numbers don't show that. Yeah, there's, like, there's nothing behind them. They could have pulled them out of their goodness knows what. So there has been a report released by StockApps.com. And that report gives five numbers, which they say is a count of the number of distinct data points that each of the major five tech companies collect. And it's an interesting way of counting how much data they collect, because you're not counting the volume of data, you're counting how many different types of data. So email address plus name plus IP address plus gender plus age, you know, each of those would be a data point and you might collect five million location addresses, but it doesn't matter because that's one data point location. And so if you add up the total number of distinct data points, then you get some sort of idea of how broad the tracking is. And so when the the report says that Google collect 39 distinct data points and Apple collect 12, they're the two extremes mm-hmm. of the study. Keeping up the middle are Twitter and Amazon with 23 and 24. And then what I don't understand why it isn't over all of the headlines is Facebook is on 14. Huh. Facebook's so the headline 14. should be Facebook just as privacy focused as Apple. Right, but of course that's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on here? Well, the first obvious flaw with this logic is, so, okay, so I read the report. I read all of the report. It didn't take me long. There's almost nothing there. It's a press release. Because report is a strong name, yeah. Yeah, so we get a graph with the five numbers. They don't even list the data points. So we don't actually know what they do and what they don't consider personal data. What was their definition? Also, why do we assume that one data point is as privacy invading as another? Why do we assume that one is equal to one? If I know your name versus if I know everywhere you've been in the last two months, they are not equal. They're equal I'd say data my point. home address is much more private than my email address. Bingo, right? So even just the notion that we can count privacy by number of data points is nonsense. They also don't tell us how they figured out what is and isn't being collected. So we don't know what they're counting as private, and we don't know how they know what they claim to know. So what do we actually have here? We have a press release. That's that's pretty much the height of it. So is Facebook really... Have we, have we all just been wrong? Like, has every other piece of research <laughs> ever been wrong? Well, that's a pretty extraordinary claim, so there should be a really extraordinary bit of evidence, and that ain't this, right? So, you know, as I see it, the three possibilities, everything we know about Facebook is wrong, I discount that instantly. The problem is in the what. So Facebook has 14, but what if those 14 are completely different to Apple's 12? Apple, for example, take payment information. Facebook don't. So Apple must have a bunch of those 12 data points being your credit card number and expiry date and that kind of stuff. And Facebook don't collect that. So it's not just that they collect two more things. They probably collect like 10 things that are different to Apple's. They could be disastrously horrible things they're collecting. 
And then there's one sentence in the report that throws a whole other thing into it, which is how, how do they count? Because I'll read you this sentence and tell me what jumps out at you. Google collects more different types of information for individual users. The firm relies on this data for targeting advertising rather than relying on third-party trackers. That implies to me that they didn't count third-party trackers. <laughs> so maybe Facebook actually has 50 data points, but they've outsourced right. all but 14 of them. Which would be fair if this was a well-sourced, documented, showing me the examples. Uh, you know, this is a useful bit of information. It's not the whole story on privacy, but first-party tracking is this kind. That'd be great. That'd be useful. Yeah. I mean, I I was a science student. When we had to write up a report, we basically had to say what question we were trying to answer, what our methodology was, show our mm -hmm. working, and then come to a conclusion. Well, we're missing everything <laughs> on that list apart from the, and here's our conclusion. It's like, wow, what was the design of your experiment? How did you carry it out? Where did you get your data from? It's all just missing. It is a press release. My my biggest problem with this report is that they they were inefficient. Uh, they should have just put out the headline. That's really all they needed. <laughs> and even even the headline, the, like I mean, the thing is, even it's not even unbiased. It's clear from the headline who they're going after oh, because yeah. the report is titled "Google Tracks Thirty Nine Types of Private Data: The Highest Among Big Tech Companies." And Google get mentioned all throughout <laughs> the report. Apple get like a one liner. The most privacy conscious firm out there. Apple only stores the information that is necessary to maintain user accounts. In terms of Twitter and Facebook, it says both save more information than they need to. However, with Facebook, most of the data they store is information users enter. Okay. And? I was going to say I enter lots of information that's really personal. That doesn't really have any yeah. effect. And poor Amazon only get a mention in Apple's sentence. Apple is in a league above Amazon protecting in protecting user privacy. That's it. That's all is they that say about Amazon. League or which league are they? What in? game? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so basically... At best, this is noise. And depending on what they've done, it could be misinformation because their design was just bad or disinformation because their design was bad and they know it. Mm -hmm. But best case scenario, it's noise. So I would love to believe this because it lines up with all of my preconceptions. Nope. When I first saw this story, I thought, oh, well, this will be interesting until I saw that there was no information behind it and we ignored it. <laughs> We're like, there's, and and you're doing a service because so many people have seen this that it's worth pointing out. Like, you may have seen this. There's nothing behind it. That's important to do once it gets it catches on. But yeah. there's no story here. There's, right. There really isn't. It's it's a headline wanting to get retweeted, like you say, as as a headline and nothing else. And to be perfectly honest, if I'd been in more of a rush, I would have been one of the idiots retweeting it. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of glad yeah. I was. I'm kind of it's sort of a cautionary tale. Be careful what you retweet because you can end up looking like an idiot. I think it's kind of why I felt it was worthy of putting into the show notes. Totally. Anyway, other worthy warnings. Uh, this, so we're back to our usual section of here's all the horrible here's all the horrible things that have happened. Watch out. So first <laughs> off, Plex really have been breached. They really did send those emails telling you to reset your password. You really should reset your password. Uh, then DoorDash also lost some data. Oh, sorry, Tom. Did you skip action alerts? 
Yes, I did, because I scrolled oh. too happily. Thank you. No worries. You're, you're doing an excellent job sending in for Um <laughs> Yeah, so before we get to those little warning-y things, um, the minor thing of those software updates you should be patchy, patchy, patch-patching with, um, I don't mention every update to Chrome because there's a lot of them. But uh, there's 11 fixes to the latest version of Chrome, and one of them is a zero day. So actually, I'm going to mention it, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, which for Chrome means Mm -hmm. turn it off and turn it on again. And it's a browser, and I don't like doing that. So I am sure I am not alone with having copies of my browser open for weeks on end. None of them are Chrome, but I do keep my browsers open for weeks on end. Same here. In fact, I just checked Chrome to make sure it didn't have that update waiting, and I I have started it since then. Oh, good. Um, Apple have fixed a whole bunch of zero days um, in iPadOS, uh, macOS, uh, iOS. Um, and well, In fact, one of them is in Safari, so there's actually a new version of Safari for the older operating systems too. It is, it is a real security vulnerability you really should patch. For reasons I don't quite understand, this security vulnerability that is no worse than the ones patched a month ago, two months ago, four months ago, this one caught fire in the media. I heard about it on the 8 o'clock news on Irish radio. Wow, really? It's a four-minute news segment. Wow. And it made it. Yeah, it's like, why is this everywhere? I, you because, know what? I, I feel like the BBC had it in their in their morning update, too, now that you mentioned that. I think it may even have made BBC World News. They have two half-hour podcasts a day covering mm-hmm. the world. And I'm pretty sure it made it in there, which, which is ridiculous. This is just a plain old Apple security update. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Just like you yeah. always should. We On Daily Tech News Show, we came to the conclusion that the only reason it got so much attention is that Apple uncharacteristically gave you details in the patch. Yeah, there was uh, something in the notes, yeah. Yeah, instead Actually, of just saying bug fixes. My, my, my mother, who is like, Alison gets cranky when I talk about mothers in the generic, because it is quite true that it is absolutely correct that, you know, being a mother does not make you bad at tech. But my mom right. doesn't do tech. My mom has no interest mm-hmm. in tech. My mom would like to achieve things, but she... She regrets that tech is involved. She messaged me on in, on Instagram, not Instagram, the Facebook one that I don't like using, but I use it because she's there. WhatsApp, that's the one, the green one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she messaged me on WhatsApp going, how do I have to do anything? I said, well, when that little one shows up next to the little cog icon, just do the update thing. But that's yeah. what I always do. It's like like yeah, you should always do every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she was very quick to say, but I always do that. So I'm fine. I was like, yeah, you're fine. Yeah. But the radio, I said, no, you're fine. Yeah, but... This is this Apple's like this is why we don't give details. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, lesson learned. We shall say nothing. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now we get to go on to our worthy warnings. Yes. So Plex, I got one of these emails from Plex. Um, so Me too. yeah, do that. Um, and then DoorDash also managed to expose. Uh, the company says there were no identity theft or fraud so far, which is an interesting thing to put into your press release. Um, what we know was uh, compromised was name, email address, delivery address, and phone number for all users, and in some users' cases, payment card type and the last four digits of the payment card. Uh, we know that there were no full payment details or no passwords in any form, be they hashed or unhashed. And we know that there was a third-party contractor who was successfully fished, and uh, which reminds me an awful lot of the Target hack, which was done through a HVAC company. And uh, DoorDash has said they are making some changes to make their system more secure, which is as much as I knew. But then you read some more stories while I was out cycling. Yeah, so uh, 
there was a Twilio hack uh, earlier in the month announced on August 8th. Uh, Twilio is a company that, among many of its other things, provides uh, the service that will send second factors to folks uh, through SMS. Uh, a horrible way to do a second factor, but it's better than not doing a second factor. Uh, they had one of their employees fished, uh, at least one, possibly yeah. more, um, by a group that went to a database aggregator apparently and just bought uh you know phone numbers that were associated with uh names of people and found the names of the people at Twilio and then called them and said or, or messaged them sent them a message uh saying oh your your schedule has changed or your password has changed click yeah. here took them to a malicious site you know etc cetera, etc cetera. typical phishing attack uh that got the group access to some of Twilio's client information among Twilio's clients are Facebook, <laughs> Uber, um, lots of big companies. Yeah. So uh, one of those companies was Okta. Okta provides single sign-in. They've, they've been in the news before right here on Security Bits. Uh, and they were able to access a small number of Okta's one-time passwords uh, for their cus Okta customers. Uh, so, Group 1B out of Singapore believes the attackers have now compromised 9,931 accounts at 130 companies. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, DoorDash is among the companies they believe this group has been able to fish into, although DoorDash is not, they didn't get into DoorDash with the Twilio information. It's just the same group ah. going out doing lots of, uh, of phishing. And Twilio confirmed that multi-factor authentication code manager Authy uh, was affected by the Twilio breach. And one of the things that Authy does is allow you to sync your multi-factor codes on multiple devices, which is a great way to be able to have two phones and still have all your multi-factor codes. Uh, however, it's bad if someone through a Twilio breach can access the accounts of 93 users and register additional devices, thereby gaining access to all those multi-factor codes. Oopsie. Authy identified and removed the suspicious devices uh, and advised affected users to disable multi-device support and review devices on their account. So if you are an Authy user, uh, good reminder to go in there and check to make sure there's no devices that you don't recognize associated with your Authy account. Yeah. If you have a laptop and a phone and you see a laptop, a phone and another phone, that is not good. No. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, another thing that made a lot of news, um, I, I know I caught Alison's eye in the Slack. Um, so we mentioned last time sort of in passing that there had been some research that, uh, you know, if you have an embedded browser, then mm. the app that embeds the browser can see what you're doing. Well, it turns out that there's different gradations of that particular fact. So if you embed a Safari view, you can see the URLs the person's surfing to, which is useful for tracking and stuff. But you actually have kind of less ability to embed stuff. But if you just embed a native HTML viewer, you can basically embed any JavaScript you like and basically spy on every single possible javascript event which is like you know the mouse moves the key is touched like mm -hmm. everything and just so, like any browser can right right it's just that you have made the browser so you get the powers of a browser right and also you can stick that kind of javascript on your site and then you're tracking the uses of your site when I mean, we know that a first party can track the absolute you know everything out of everyone well by embedding the browser 
TikTok have become the first party in everything you do in that in-app browser, and they're not using a Safari view, so they are able to do absolutely everything. And a security researcher decided to add some JavaScript to a page of his, which he could then navigate to in the TikTok browser, and his JavaScript was watching the JavaScript that TikTok (laughs) injected, so it was tattletailing on the spying JavaScript. And basically, they were watching everything. They had linked themselves into all the key bindings. You know, so basically, every time you touched the keyboard, they knew what key you'd pressed, and that they were just tracking absolutely positively everything, like a screen reader would. I was not too worried about this until I got to the part where you can't get out of it. So there's lots of apps that make uh, that use the frame, but not the Safari view. Uh, and so you should always be wary about, you know, what you're doing. Uh, and, and I was like, you know, I, I, I think their flimsy excuse of we were just using an off the shelf API. We did, you know, the fact that it could also do the, all these nefarious things, uh, news to us, we never used that stuff was, was very flimsy, but yeah. I was still, okay if like yeah but you know you you probably want to always be opening things in an external browser anyway until i found that this researcher also found that tiktok was the only app they studied that didn't let you just tap a button to open the link in an external browser uh allison found that once you're you've opened the page you can click the three dot menu and and ios will let you open it (laughs) in safari uh but but TikTok doesn't make it easy uh, for you to do that. And I think that's that's pretty nasty. That That is pretty icky. And I will also say that this is a classic example of where you need, when you're using an app, it's very important to understand whether its incentives are aligned with yours. So I do not have any problem whatsoever using the embedded browser in Reader. Reader mm-hmm. is a paid-for RSS app that I am the customer of. They have zero incentive to spy on me and 100% incentive to keep me happy. I don't think twice about using Reader to read the web. I have a vastly different opinion of opening stuff in the embedded browser in WhatsApp. Because their incentive is quite different. And and if you're being extra careful, never open it in the in-app browser. Always open it in an external browser. But like, you know, your your life is is your life and and there's certain things that you're that convenience will trump fidelity on. And if you trust reader app like you do, then that's probably a a fair risk to take. But people should just be careful that they realize what the risk assessment is before they do it. Exactly. What I'd like to say on this show is that I'm not going to tell you what the right or the wrong decision is. I just want you to make one. Yeah, just know that you you are making one, even if you don't realize it. Right, that's the thing. You see, people just do it, whereas I just say they're yeah. not making a decision, they're just doing it. So I'm saying if I've gotten you to the point where you're, you've done it as a decision, then my job, my work here is done. There you go. You've made yeah, a choice, absolutely. great. Um, and the other thing is on most apps, what you're looking for is the square box with the up arrow. And you click on that and you go open in Safari. Yep. And that's what TikTok didn't give you. They made you go through the operating TikTok. system. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Lovely. Okay, this next story is not an easy one to do. Um, so there was a there was a dad whose kid got sick during the COVID shenanigans in in an intimate area, and on the advice of his doctor, he documented the progression of the illness on his Android smartphone. And unlike the CSAM scanner that Apple was forced to abandon, Google do not match, sorry, they do not only 
match against the Nickmec database, they also throw the notoriously inaccurate AI at the problem. And they basically were like, yeah, well, our AI says that you're, 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 this is child abuse, therefore your account is blocked. Good day, and we've reported you to the police. The police investigated, found that there was, in fact, nothing nefarious here whatsoever, and Google are like, yeah, we're still not giving your stuff back. Yeah, we we reported on this one on, on DTNS as well. Uh, it seems like the the Google side of this is there the picture was taken on the father's Android phone by the wife, by the mother, uh, because they were in a rush. And then she realized that it was easier for her to access the secure portal to the hospital from her iPhone. So she sent it to herself. So that was flag one is it was in messaging, not just stored and uploaded through Google photos. Google also said there was a video of a woman lying naked in bed with a baby uh, on the phone. Uh, the father said, I don't remember that. I can't access my photos and look at it to tell you what it was. But I imagine maybe I, you know, when the baby was just born, we, we you know, took a, a photo on a morning or something. Uh, the police acknowledged that, that, that they saw all, they didn't acknowledge that video in particular, but they said, we saw all the things that were on that phone and we did not see anything of concern to charge the person with. Uh, and Google is taking the hard line of, even if the police can't charge you, that doesn't mean you weren't doing something. People get off on technicalities and stuff might be what they would say. They didn't say that, but that that's the attitude of like, we're going to be more vigorous in preventing this so that ne'er-do-wells don't skate around the law. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, this guy got caught up in that. Uh, the police say they're going to give him, they're going to try to give him his, uh, a thumb drive of his photo archive back, but he isn't getting anything out of Google, it doesn't look like. Yeah, and this this seriously makes me cranky because we know that AI is really bad at its job. We all know this. We know how there terrible was human. Siri is. There was human review. They they. It's not. Yeah, this isn't well, just an AI story. The uh, AI flagged it. The human looked at it and saw the video, and that's why they made the decision. So they weren't relying just on AI. Right, but the thing is, there is the world of difference between child abuse imagery and a photo that contains an undressed child. They are not the same thing. It was a very close-up photo. So, again, I haven't seen the photo. I don't want to see the photo. Uh, But from from the reporting in the New York Times, uh, out of context, the photo would be concerting to (laughs) non-AIs, to to humans. Uh, and, And so it was that, the messaging, and the other video uh, that caused the human reviewer to flag it. And so I, I'm with you that I, I don't trust AI. I don't think that's the the, the problem with this story. Yeah, I, I think it's a problem. I would consider it a it's problem, a problem with the story. Because- but it sounds like that part of the system worked, which was AI flagged something, the human reviewed it, and the human was the weak part where, where they said, I think this is concerning. And even that might not be a weak point if referring to the police the police said yep no we looked into it this guy you know he's he's got a clean history uh we talked to the doctor the doctor said that actually happened so not a problem and and google said oh our our mistake we were just being extra careful i wouldn't have a problem with this story uh it's unfortunate but i'm okay with that level of inconvenience for the person in order to catch the malicious people the fact that google is still saying that we don't care what the police said 
That and the fact that there is absolutely positively no right to even have your side of the story. The yeah, AI right. says so. We're just going to do this. Good day. It, it's it's b- my point is it's not because the AI said so. It's because the human said so. Right, but the human wouldn't have been involved if the AI hadn't have been off doing its fuzzy logic. And like I, the Apple system I, is, so we may much just safer. have to agree to disagree on this. I think a human looking at that photo would have still sent it along. I think the AI is just sifting through and making it scalable. In this particular instance, anyway, mm, I I had no I had absolutely no problem with Apple's system scanning against fingerprints from the Nick Mac database. Oh sure, no, I'm infinitely prefer that one. Yeah, and it just I just find it ironic that Apple weren't allowed to do that because oh my god, oh goodness me, the world is ending, and Google have been doing this for a decade. Yeah. No, at the time of that Apple controversy, I, I thought it was interesting. People were like, yeah, but we know Google invades right. all our privacy and, and just let them off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that is a thing, right? So I guess the really, really bottom line is be very, very aware that mm-hmm. your phones are spying on you. And like, there is no distinction between the doctor told me to. Particularly if you're using Google Photos. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but this is reasonable doesn't work when AI is involved because it certainly didn't hear. Yeah. So be aware. Uh, And another thing just to be aware of is that the North Koreans appear to be in a Mac targeting mood. There is uh, targeted phishing going at Mac users with fake job ads coming from the Lazarus group, who are basically North Korea's money raising arm. Hmm. Um, They're famous for nearly stealing a billion dollars from the Bank of Malaysia and getting an entire BBC podcast series about it, which is really good. Hey, at least North Korea is good at something. (laughs) It's kind of impressive given the infrastructure. Uh, Notable news then. Uh, Twitter's recently fired security chief has, uh, who was a storied hacker and researcher before he was Twitter's security anything, uh, has filed a formal whistleblower disclosure with the uh, one of the U.S. uh, government agencies. SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission. And uh, the details are sparse, and the whistleblowing legislation kind of puts a limit on what can be said. So the interviews with the lawyer and stuff are all a bit vague. And he's like, yeah, I can't actually say more because this is a formal process. But the key points would appear to be that Twitter are not living up to what they agreed to live up to in their 2011 settlement with the FTC. Uh, Twitter do not appear to be doing nearly enough to protect their platform, and uh, Mudge's point is that is literally a danger to democracy around the world, and, you know, people have been killed with false, fake news in India and stuff, that is, that all happened. And Twitter also appeared to have too many people who can just access everyone's tweets, and we know of at least one incident where someone was, where a Twitter employee was prosecuted successfully for handing stuff over to authoritarian governments. So the the fear is that there are implants in Twitter from you know Saudi Arabia and those kind of governments. And since yeah, particularly they they he noted an Indian employee. Uh, it you know that that was in the uh, the, the report from CNN and Washington Post. Uh, is that they hired a, an Indian government employee who then had access to sensitive Twitter data. Yeah. Um, but there were also around 5,000 full-time employees that had access to sensitive user data. Uh, and and Mudge, the, the hacker uh, that we're talking about here, uh, alleged that during the January 6th riots in the U.S., uh, he wanted to lock down internal access, and he couldn't because <laughs> too many people had access. That's um, terrifying. Yeah, that that's the part that really stuck out to me. 
Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to see it in video form, uh, there is a link in the show notes to a nice summary from CNN, which uh, with, a, with a tech report with a very distinctive Irish name and accent and red hair. Um, so there you go. Um, and then uh, John Gruber made a very interesting point in his coverage. Remember, folks, DMs are not end-to-end encrypted. <laughs> just, a just a point to note. I, th- I think his advice was: if you don't want it on a, if you wouldn't want it on a postcard, don't stick it in a DM. Which is probably wise. That takes us on to top tips. Uh, Ken Ray over at the Checklist Podcast from Secure Mac has a good episode on uh, going securely back to school. That seems timely and useful. So link in show notes. In terms of excellent explainers, then, uh, we have some fantastic analysis uh, from the guys over at Intego, the Secure Mac uh, blog there. Uh, Which is more secure, Face ID, Touch ID, or a passcode? They go in great detail. Um, It's it's a really well-written post, so I highly recommend people have a read of that. Bottom line is they're all good. Uh, The most secure is actually a long passphrase, but that's not particularly convenient unless you're an identical twin. The best balance is probably face ID. And if you are an identical (laughs) twin, if you trust your identical twin, then it's probably still best to use face ID. Um, But if you don't, not so much. What if only one of the twins is trustworthy? I was going to say, if you have like an evil twin, definitely a bad idea. Definitely a bad idea. And then the last, I have a section in the show notes called Just Because It's Cool, where I can put stuff that isn't news and isn't really a worthy warning and doesn't fit into any other category, but gosh darn it, it's security rated and it's cool. There's a, there's a crowd over in, I think they're in Israel, who just did these amazing research projects into how can we make data go through the air? Like, how can we take systems that should absolutely positively not be able to communicate with each other in any way, shape, size or form and make them chat with each other anyway? Well, they've been at it again. Now, the bit rate is ridiculously low i think it's like a bit a second (laughs) but again a private key you can get it out there in an hour or two um basically your your the headline says your phone's compass can be used as a microphone but basically it's the accelerometer can pick up the vibrations of sound and stuff and so you you can basically sneak stuff through through accelerometers and they've That's, done it. It's proof of concept. It's I not love these stories where they're like, we could mo- we could detect the fan modulation and and then deduce, you know, what was. Oh, it was these guys too, actually. I think. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. You ramp up and down the fans. Another one was that you could add a distinct amount of redness to the screen. A particular shade of red, <laughs> its presence or absence would mean one or zero. Uh, was another oh, one. That's amazing. It's, these guys are just like it's absolutely insane. But they can find a way to get a signal, and if you can get a signal out, you can get a signal out. It's just wonderful. You can't stop the signal. There you go. And we have, we have a genuine palate cleanser to finish off from Alison, since she's not here. Uh, she posted this in our Slack over at podv.com forward slash Slack. And uh, it is a wonderful short segment of a longer interview with Richard Feynman, where he basically explains that trees come from the air. They're not made of ground. They're made of air. In fact, they're mm. made of sun, if you really think about it carefully. It's just I guess wonderful. that makes sense. Yeah. It, oh, it's so good. So anyway, that is uh, that is all we got. Tom, thank you so much for being my uh, partner in crime on this one. Absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, this 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 was fun, and I, I volunteered for the job. So thank thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, you're welcome anytime. Now you may need to fight with Alison because I think she enjoys these segments too. But I oh I yeah, great no. Fun. And uh, nothing replaces me sitting there, walking my dog, uh, listening to to you and Allison uh, noodle out all of the ins and outs of a, of a particular story. It's it's quite enjoyable. So I I will only do it if Allison can't. 
that's reasonable. And and Alice, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. You can't listen to a show you're on. It's terrible. When I get to be a guest on a show I enjoy, it's like, but I don't get to enjoy this episode. That's a good point. I'm going to have to skip this segment on Monday, won't I? Yeah, saying I know this. I was there anyway. Yeah. Thank you very much. we don't usually do this on security, but we should today, I think. Do you want to give people a link to where they can find you? Just in case someone uh, doesn't know you. Sure, yeah. If if you uh, want to hear my take on, on the stories I mentioned that we talked about on Daily Tech News Show, uh, dailytechnewsshow.com. Uh, and I wrote up some of these stories, including the one we talked about on Twilio. Uh, and I actually have a write-up uh, about the one with Mudge. Uh, and the Twitter uh, revelations, uh, those are on my substack at techtom.substack.com. It's like tech time, but tech tom. Oh, I like it. And I'll just give a little plug that you have. Daily Tech News Today comes in two flavors, a long flavor and a nice short five-minute flavor. And I adore your little short daily podcasts. They are... In Overcast, you can make some podcasts go straight to the top and jump to the next song. And you are there. Like that, that ah, show is you. there. That as soon That's as that comes into my feed, it jumps straight to it, and I never miss it because that way I know that if something really important has happened, gosh darn, and I'm going to know about it. I'm going to know about it quickly. Ah, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks, man. Okay. Well. Um, oh wait, no. I usually end these segments. Oh, I'm so confused. You're not Alice. Anyway, <laughs> uh, remember, folks. Until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, how fun was that? The best part of this was it was Tom's idea. He said, "Hey, next time you're not around, can I can I sit in and be the uh, you know play the stooge with Bart?" And I think he did a great job. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at any time you want at allison at podfee.com? And there's a really, really good chance that I'll answer you. I answer pretty much everybody. If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfee. And if you don't want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community. And you know, everything good starts with podfee.com. So that would be at podfee.com slash Slack. And in there, you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. You can hear Bart is talk to Bart in there. Uh, Jill from the Northwoods is in there. Bruce, also known as Use the Data, is in there. And uh, so it's a great time in there. And I, I really hope you guys join the Slack. More and more people coming in. It's chatty, but not too chatty. You know, it's kind of that sweet spot. Anyway, back to everything good, starting with podfeet.com. You know you can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or the one-time donations at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, where would you go? You'd head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Who knows? Maybe you could have heard your name read during roll call by none other than my grandson Forbes this week. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.